0: Hey, it's Scott Orner, of Cruise Consulting, and welcome to another episode of Founders and Friends. And before we start the podcast, let's give a quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is the new cool payroll tool that we see a lot of startups using. Rippling is great for your traditional HR and payroll. They integrate very nicely. But guess what? They did another thing. They integrate into your IT infrastructure. They make it really easy for when you hire someone to spin up all the web services and their computer, which sounds kind of like not a huge deal, but actually we did the study at Cruise. We spend $420 on average just getting a new employee's computer up and running and their web service up and running. It's actually a really big deal. saves a lot of money. And the dogs are eating the dog food. Like We see a lot of startups coming in. The Cruise is now using Rippling. So please check out Rippling. Great service. We love it. I think we have a podcast with Parker Conrad. You can hear it from his own words, but we're seeing them take market share. So shout out to Rippling. And now to another awesome podcast at Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends. Thanks. So when your troubles are mounting, in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise. cruise from Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting, Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm. Oh. Oh. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orne at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is
1: John Schroeder of Nova Foresight. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I meant to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I've been listening to the last couple episodes. And um, we talked when you talked about Squadcast and, and Clockwise, and there's so many great Products out there that we should be learning about, and you do just a great job of explaining the products and the and the story behind them.
0: Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. That means a lot, and it's just it's just fun. I know yeah. you work with a lot of startups too. So when you work with startups, you can't help but be intoxicated by the the passion and how they're going to change the world. And so I love promoting them and helping people find out about them. So thank you. Maybe just to start off, you can retrace your career a little bit and how you had the idea for Nova Foresight.
1: Yeah, well, let me uh, sort of take you back to the very beginning. So I grew up in uh, Illinois, about an hour out of Chicago. At the time, the town had 6,466 people as a population sign said, surrounded by cornfields. But it's it's grown a lot since then. Um, but I, I was listening to one of your other guests the other day, and she said that she was the first in her family to go to college. And I was, oh, yeah. I was the exact yeah. opposite. I was the fifth in my family <laughs> to go to a private school, so we had like Brown and Haverford and Swarthmore and Stanford, and I was kind of the reject, only making it into Northwestern. As a
0: Northwestern, I love. I take a little. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it hurts
1: a little bit. When you say that. <laughs> I love Northwestern, uh, in spite of or despite the football team. But uh, <laughs> so, kind of my introduction to entrepreneurship happened in a way I wasn't really hoping it to happen. But so I get to school and um two years in uh, my dad lost his job and w- what i didn't know at the time was that in the process of putting five kids through private school my parents savings had been pretty depleted so mm-hmm. i had to find a way to make a lot of money really fast and, and what i ended up doing was a very low-tech entrepreneurship project but i started a window washing business and it turns out that uh, no one likes to wash businesses so it was a wide open market but uh, it's a great opportunity to learn about like pricing and positioning yeah. um, marketing all that kind of stuff and it ended up
0: probably fulfillment too like just getting you know either you or the the folks you needed to help you wash all the windows, just managing those people must have been really intense as a, as
1: a young man. Yeah, it was awesome. It was challenging. It was one of those jobs where you come home and you're sw- soaky sweaty. Um, but it was, you know, as you say, it was really nice. It's great to look back at a house and see the clean windows and, and all the lessons that came with it. But so kind of fast forward, I, my career took me to the big four. I then spent a lot of my career at Nielsen. I worked in the innovation division, led up one of the global groups. And I remember there was a time when I was asked by the CEO to start up a new division. So at that point, my wife had just quit her job. She was taking a two or three year break to raise our young kids. And so I went from my stable job at Nielsen where I had a lot of clients and a good revenue stream to this new division where I had exactly zero dollars coming in. And as I thought about that, I, I started to think maybe it wasn't the smartest idea to do that at the point where my wife had just quit her job. <laughs> and so I, I go to the first big client, and this is a, a well-known international CPG company. I tell them about the product that we're going to bring to market. And the guy says in a very nice way, he said, Hey, we love your company. You know, we know you do good work. It will never work in our industry. And and I don't know if if like you've ever had that experience, but I just had yeah. the cold rush of blood <laughs> running through me. Um, and I quit- Well, those are those moments though, where either you're really
0: onto something cause it's not obvious to, you know, even some of the people in the industry, or it's very scary. Yeah. Cause it turns out that person was right. You know, you realized <laughs> it two years
1: later. Well, I'll tell you what, if it was really obvious, it wasn't really obvious to me. um, So then I learned, this is the first time I learned about pivoting. So I ended up switching this discussion around with him. And I said, okay, well, just then tell me, you know, what are the problems that you're trying to solve? How are you doing it? What's working and what's, what's not working? And in an ideal world, you know, what would you have? So I spoke with a bunch of other leaders in that particular industry. And I went through that same pitch and I told them, look, hey, this is not a sales call. I'm trying to learn. And what I'm going to do as a result of all this learning is to write this up and come come back and present that to you. So you're going to get these great new insights. Mm-hmm. Well, just to make a long story short, I've got very smart about their particular industry, about their need, and I got all the information I needed in order to pivot the service that we were offering, uh, and you know we became really successful. So that was my, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that was my introduction to pivoting. So how I got to Nova Foresight is on my journey at Nielsen. One of the stops I had was to work with um, small size companies, small mid-sized companies. And mm-hmm. Scott, I know you've worked in professional service, and you know you, you guys probably didn't have this issue, but with a larger company like Nielsen, oftentimes the the midcap companies were training grounds. So they were where the young people went on their first assignment, who weren't particularly mm-hmm. well trained, and you know they would typically go on and off, and the teams would rotate, and the, the service levels for these guys was just not very good. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I was working with the smaller companies, I found them just absolutely fascinating. I mean, typically the issues were much more dynamic, they were were more into taking risks, more into looking at big new markets, you know, rather than having the 37th flavor of vodka, like which is not the most exciting <laughs> thing in the world. So I was really hooked on working with smaller companies and I decided to jump off and start Nova Foresight to do just that. But Instead of bringing junior-level people to work on these engagements, um, what we would do is only bring senior-level people. Yeah. And so it's it's worked out really well. What I found over the last couple of years is I've been approached by a number of you know, fairly well-funded startups to help them in this same journey, um, and and I thoroughly enjoyed the, the kind of work that we've done with those guys.
0: That's really amazing, and you know, so you you probably were able to deliver really great service to them. Cause you focused on them, you know, that's something we do quite a bit It's like when you really, cause Nielsen probably wasn't focused on the, the mid cap type of clients, but when you made that commitment, both kind of business wise and emotionally, you were ready to, to help them and serve them. That's a really, really cool story.
1: Yeah. And it works out really well. And I think, you know, like, like you, uh, we're virtual. So we don't have the overhead that companies with an office over Fifth Avenue would have, and so we're able to go to the market at just a different price point that's much more reasonable for these kind of companies.
0: Yeah, that's like the Cruise Consulting playbook here. Yeah, <laughs> we we're a brother or companies from another mother or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, and it's, I also think it's really cool that you kind of in that project or in that time frame kind of demystified the 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 quote unquote pivot. Yep. Yeah because it can be really intimidating for a few people. And that's why I thought it'd be a really great conversation to have on the podcast. Cause like, it can be scary and you don't know what you're getting into and you don't know how to do it. And the thing that I w- thought was really cool about you is like, not only have you been through it but you have kind of a playbook for how to tackle that situation. Yeah. And so I wanted to just kind of talk about that.
1: That's great. A couple areas we could start thinking about is is the first area which is when, will you, when do you want to do a pivot?
0: Yeah, exactly. Or like knowing the right time, yeah. you know? Or,
1: yeah. So just to to sort of preface this whole conversation, and, and, and as you say, it can be a, a scary prospect. So one of my clients uh, was named Zapata Computing, they create software for the quantum computing market. I have never worked with as intelligent a group of people. I mean, literally, this was Harvard's quantum computer unit kind of and, and they left out and they started up this little startup, this is the smartest people you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. So yeah. when I was helping them on this process, they were just as mystified as anyone else was. So, you know, of all the founders out there who are, are looking at the idea of pivoting and saying, oh my goodness, this is, this is a hard thing. You know, just take comfort in knowing that you're not alone. Also, just a lot of the
0: best companies end up having gone through like an early stage pivot, like Twitter was actually a company called Odeo. Yeah. That didn't a podcasting company didn't make it. And then they pivoted to Twitter and became a $30 billion company, you know. And that's like that's one of like hundreds and hundreds of examples. Right. So it's not like there's no there shouldn't be any kind of stigma with it. It's just like it's more about living the reality of like, hey, if you're gonna build a successful company, you need to have traction. Yeah. And if you're not getting traction doing what you're doing, let's let's figure it out and go go a different direction.
1: Yeah. And I think traction, that's the key word. So When I work with clients to understand when to pivot, I think of three different things. One is the obvious loss of traction, which typically manifests itself in terms of revenues, customers, or what have you. Two, when there's a clear change in the environment, and we're all living through one right now with COVID-19. And then three is when there's an unexpected opportunity just handed in your lap. So to just give you a couple of examples of each one of these um, for the loss of traction. So I was working with a, a company in the workforce platform uh, industry. So think of Upwork or GLG or Catalan or those kind of guys. So these guys had done reasonably well. Their particular niche in that marketplace was AI and blockchain talent. So really, really high-end uh, tech talent, very hard to find. But at the same time, they were were just not growing at the level that they had hoped to grow. And one of their funders was Peter Diamandis. So I think he had ideas that they would grow maybe a little bit faster than they were growing. So enter one of their new clients, which was one of the big four. And so what their challenge was, the big four client, they needed to get access to this high-end talent, the AI and the blockchain. But when they sold a consulting project, they needed to have those people literally in two days, up and running and staffed. Mm, um, that's not a very long time frame to get it staffed. Yeah. That's, it's basically it pretty close to impossible. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless what you've done is to take this whole group of high end talent and then pre vet them. So the pre vetting means, um, they would go through whatever uh, governmental checks need to be done for a particular client. Um, the client specific tests, um, tests that, uh, that, that a consulting firm might run them through. And so if you take them through that whole process, which will take a couple of weeks, then suddenly you have this cloud of people who are ready to go at a moment's notice in the most hard to fill specialties. And what in the HR world, that's called a talent cloud. So they produced a talent cloud for one particular very large client, and it was absolutely phenomenally successful. So they realized, okay, well, maybe instead of trying to be this broad generic platform that people kind of come to on a, on a transactional basis, they'll create clouds specifically for high-end tech firms, uh, for, for firms that are engaging in major digital transformation, which is an awful lot of firms in the economy today, um, and, and use that as their entree. So that's kind of where I came in and, and helped them out. So that example is just the loss of traction another is an an example is just a clear change in the environment so Mm -hmm. obviously virtually anyone you talk to today about their business is going to talk about COVID 19 and how that how that's impacting them um one of the companies uh, i i've been working with is called curiata they are a small alcohol beverage startup and i'll explain that in a second but they're headed up by a guy named adam kaplan who i work with at nielsen who is a partner at kantar and who's absolutely a brilliant guy, in addition to being the nicest guy you'd ever meet. So they found a problem in the marketplace. And that was that um, in the alcoholic beverage category, the custom high-end spirits, the craft spirits market was growing at about 30% a year. So it's by far yeah. the fastest yep. growing market uh, in, in that entire industry. One of my good buddies was uh,
0: early, like there's a early distributor in that space in the Bay Area and mm-hmm. his business is, so fast it it was surprising to me but i think what it was just like people just they, they didn't want to go with the big brands anymore they just felt like it was handcrafted or what What was the trend there
1: yeah well uh, it's it's just the same trend that we're seeing across the entire economy and across the cpg world it's all about authenticity it's it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's about having real brands not you know fake brands like smirnoff or whatever that were that were made up <laughs> but um, the problem that your, your friends had and that and a lot of the small um, distributors or s- small manufacturers have is that it's very very difficult to break into a new market so for example yeah. if you want to you know just at a high level figure out you know, getting into chicago or new york you know what would be the cost of entry so you've got the cost of an fte selling in you've got the cost of advertising you've got the cost of doing these tastings rough guess it's about a hundred thousand so you pay this $100,000 to get into a new market and you have no guarantee of success. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the business idea that Adam had was to match supply and demand. So he created an online platform of a sort of a, a community of folks who love craft liquor. And oh my God, so he, smart, and, so smart. And so he could get in a particular geography commitments from folks for a particular craft brand to bring them in so that they didn't have to do the $100,000 worth of advertising and the distributor on on their side didn't have to worry about, you know, whether their this brand was going to flame out or not so they were wasting their time. So all of that was a was a brilliant idea with one exception. It's
0: almost like a Kickstarter or a, like a, a crowdfunding or crowd customers. Yeah. Like Generating customers through the
1: cloud for, for like pre-selling them—that's really really smart. Yeah, right. I mean, and really, if you think about that, that would have applicability across a lot of different industries. Yeah. Until COVID nineteen hit, <laughs> and then oh gosh, yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. So you know, the, the change in the environment there was that they just didn't have a market anymore. But at the same time, uh, you've probably noticed in driving around, if you look at a liquor store, the parking lots are always full. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel
0: like they've, I've I've heard anecdotally that liquor companies are doing really well in COVID because everyone's at home and bored and nothing else to do. Um, Yeah, well, I
1: can say from firsthand experience, it was a sample of one. That's true. (laughs) Um, But the other thing that you're probably not seeing is that online liquor sales are taking off. Uh, When I say taking Mm -hmm. off, they've grown year over year by 400%. Wow. So Amazing. a huge new market for them. And so they just pivoted. Um, and so they took that change in the environment, made a, a change to the business model and it's, it's just taking off. And then how did how did he, maybe this is, and I don't want to jump forward DuVast, but like, did you
0: consult with him and help him like, did you guys have a moment where you just stare each other in the eye over Zoom and said, like, hey, this is it, we gotta do it, we gotta pull the trigger on this, on this pivot? On this particular
1: one, no, but that I've had that exact moment on, on others. Yeah. Okay, so and I am sorry, I cut no, you off there. No, no, that's okay. Um, so of of the in terms of when, the third big area would be um, unexpected opportunities. So I'll give you an example of a, a company that I work with. It's now this is very low-tech. Um this is in the mosquito abatement arena. So as, as you know, our summers are getting warmer, which means more mosquitoes, um, more Zika, more West Nile, and people are getting very concerned. Even Alaska has mosquitoes now. So the, my client was building a franchise in that area, and it's worked out very well. But um, unfortunately, the large guys in that market, being uh, and Orkin, decided to enter specifically in the mosquito niche. So they were at the point of possibly getting, possibly getting squashed on. But what they found, what the franchise organization found is that a couple of their franchisees were offering broader pest services. And without getting into the specifics, they had a unique approach that was particularly valuable in the marketplace. So they recognized this as an opportunity to grow their business. We did all the research to kind of flesh out what that offering should look like. Um, Did the concept product fit? And they have grown from when I started working with them. They were valued at 1.5 million, and I believe this week, cross your fingers, I believe they're going to sell for 30 million. So it was just oh my gosh, amazing! That's incredible. Yeah, it's tremendously wow. successful.
0: Hey, it's Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting, and before we get back to the podcast, quick shout out to ChartHop. ChartHop is one of my favorite new SaaS tools on the market, and basically, what ChartHop does is it puts your org chart in the cloud. And I always like to say like, it brings transparency to your organization. And so, you know, everyone in your organization can see who they report to, they can see the full org chart of the company and how their group relates to, to other groups. It also has a lot of information on the individuals in the company. And so you can click on the chart up profile and just get like where people live, their experience, you know, Slack handles, all this kind of stuff. And it's just a really great tool. The other thing is, Chartop has started doing some cool stuff around compensation and budgeting planning. And so you can actually start seeing like, what the cost structure of the company will look like during certain kind of scenarios. So I'm loving Chartop, check it out, chartop.com. We use it at cruise really like it and I can't recommend it enough. All right, back to the podcast. So there's three different types of pivot yeah. when you, when you make that decision, like there's obviously some stake. So we, there's kind of a couple of things we should go over, but sure. sure communicate that to the stakeholders, like, hey, because
1: you're not going to get buy in, right? Like, what's the what's the preferred method? So here's what I would say, my experience as a consultant, the most single most important thing to go from having a good idea that a consultant hands you and report to having something that actually lives and breathes within your organization is to involve the key stakeholders throughout the whole process. Mm-hmm. So if if your guys who are coming up with this pivot just do so in isolation and then they tell the rest of the company, hey, we're going to move, um, I don't think that's going to be particularly successful. Yeah. But yeah. I've also found that, in, in, at least in the cases that I've been involved in, that typically the heads of the different functional areas are involved in the, the research project. Um, and by them buying in and being part of the process, um, it's just so much more likely to be successful. And then the whole issue of communication almost goes away because the heads of the areas know what's going on, so they communicate to their folks. And and so it tends to work out very, very well. On the investor side, um, I can only speak to cases where consultants are involved, because of course I'm a consultant, and so I don't know what happens when consultants are involved. But in in those cases that I've been involved with, uh, the investors tend to like facts. They like numbers, Mm -hmm. figures, and credibility. So mm-hmm. or you can go back to them and show the rigor, like for example, with uh, this, this workforce platform I talked about, we talked to the CHRO of Amazon, um, Google, Facebook, and a, a number of other pretty large companies in that particular space. And when we could say with authority that we had spoken with them, we were reflecting their thinking into this new MVP, then it just gave it so much more credibility. Yeah. That's a great point though, because you are like a subject
0: matter expert. And so that's one of the reasons to bring you into the into the equation there, because also like the board may sit there and say like, well, does the CEO have a, do they really know what they're doing or have they really thought through this? And your point about actually doing real research, putting together real numbers and having like a board ready packet to convey what you're seeing in the market and why it's so important, I think, is really, really valuable. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it it tends to work out very well, and in those cases where you're not, where companies don't do that kind of due diligence, is where they're going to have problems. Because, it, you know, just VCs tend to be very quantitative people. I mean, you were you're in that space, so you know well. Uh, they want to see numbers, and if you're just pulling something out because you you read uh, comments on Twitter, it's, it's it's not going to be as well received.
0: Yep. Now, is there the third stage of this is kind of, for lack of a better word like, how do you do it? Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. And that's, you know, that's a a topic that could fill up a a podcast or a whole series of podcasts. But let me outline a really simple approach that I think a lot of your listeners could take and could be effective for them. Awesome. So I was reading actually this morning, uh, a question on Reddit, uh, and that was from a startup. And the title was, how do you do market research? Which is kind of a big topic. But then when you read his comment, he said, well, I'm in a business-to-business market. I want to change my pricing and, and some of my offering components, um, so how do I really think about this? And some other replies said, oh, just you know, do a SurveyMonkey survey or do some usability testing. Well, that's not going to work when you're at the point where you need to pivot because the problem is you don't know what you don't know. So mm-hmm. the playbook that I would outline would start with, one, doing interviews, in-depth interviews with either existing customers or potential customers. And those interviews would look something like starting off by saying, hey, you know, when we work with you or when a product like ours, when you buy a product like ours, what what is the problem that you're trying to solve with that? And to what extent are you actually solving the problem? Where are you happy and where are you really not happy? And so this will give them a good idea as to where they fit within their customer's mind space. The second thing that we would normally do in these kind of discussions is have them review sort of a, uh, a one-page MPV. So you don't have to build anything but you can write out your service as best as you know in a single page or two pages and just have, have them react to it. You know What parts of this resonate with you, what parts don't make sense. Um, you know what things would you want to see that we're we're not offering, um, and that can help you think through your MVP in real time. And by the way, as you go through these discussions, just change your MVP to to reflect what you've learned. Do you ever do like different
0: variations of the MVP as you're trying to like tease out the key insights, or is it better to just put your energy into writing a really good document, getting in front of the potential customer and just and then pivoting later instead of like instead of like multi, multiple questions just putting one question in front of them I guess does that make sense it does yeah
1: and so the way i think about that is i try to do a couple of interviews before making any changes to the mvp but once you've done once you've done two or three with you know, a diverse set of folks, you get a pretty good idea as to what's working or what's not working with with your paper and pencil MVP. And so I tend to iterate it that way. And again, this is just in the in the early in-depth discussion phases. So just to continue on with that, so you've you've understood from them what their base problems are, you've gotten some feedback on your MVP. And the third part is to figure about, figure out roughly about pricing. And this can be a hard question to ask. And you certainly can't just ask someone, hey, how much would you pay for this? But what you can do is say, well, look, when you've gotten services similar to this in the past, how much have they typically charged? And by putting it, by framing it in that way, you're going to tend to get much better, much more quality answers. So if you take that approach, and let's say you do 10 of these interviews, I think you're going to put yourself in a really good spot in terms of being much smarter about um, what your product and service should be.
0: I love it. That's a really great methodology. I I I love how you started with the interviews at first because I think you kind of said this, but like you don't necessarily know which questions to ask right away. Yeah, and so there's that nice little discovery process, and you can be just be more agile and throw more things out to the person you're interviewing rather than rather than starting with a document from nowhere. You know, I, I think that's a really good way of doing it. And it's probably really important for, I mean, this is, I think one of the ways you probably help startups quite a bit in that you're like a professional listener and you really know what people, you can, you probably are really good at seeing, like listening and hearing what people are saying, even if they're not quite saying it explicitly, Right. you know, where I, I find that most, most founders, most people, that's, that's an acquired skill. And so unless you're really good at that naturally, you're not, I think hiring a professional like you, Right to assist in the in the practice and and the effort makes a lot of sense because I know like I'm I think I'm a pretty good listener but I just don't have years of like market research and of experience and just kind of parsing out what people people
1: really mean by what they're saying. No, does that uh, make sense? It makes sense, and of course, you know, I'd say, uh, gosh, making my ego feel bigger, but. the... <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, the truth is a, a lot of uh, your listeners aren't going to want to spend the kind of money to hire me or some research firm. And I think they can do a really good job on this process um, if you just follow that rough playbook. Let me just add one other thing that will, will make this a lot easier. So people might be thinking, well, great, I'm going to you know, talk to 10 people. I'm going to take an hour of their time. There's no way they're going to say yes to me. Well, here's here's a trick you can use that will get 50 percent or more to say yes. Tell them that uh, you're doing research and that you're speaking with people like them and their peers, and based on this, you're gonna write a report or you're gonna write a blog post or you're gonna publish an article somewhere. But then you'll come back to them and you'll provide them all this information and talk them through it. So it, for whatever reason, when people hear that their input is being used for a published article, they tend to be really interested. And, and also, you know, all these guys, their time is so valuable the one thing that is a good trade-off for their time is something they can learn. So this yeah. gives you, this gives you something they can learn and, and something that's really interesting to them. And it provides you a natural method to go back to them and say, Hey, look at, here's what I learned. Let me talk you through this. And then there's maybe a good chance that they'll become one of your customers. Now here I'm focusing on, on, on B2B, but the same can be true with consumer.
0: John, I think that's such great advice because you know, they don't know when they're answering your questions, they don't know if they're like the the person with like off the wall ideas or they're they're part of a greater collective that has the same problems mm-hmm. and so by giving them that that report or that project. You're totally right. You've validated the time they've spent. You give them a bunch of like kind of competitive or market data that they wouldn't have been able to get. Yeah. So actually like an exceptional sex, exceptionally good trade for them. Yeah, and you're right. You've started to build a relationship. Mm-hmm. So that when you go back to them, and you actually built the product you're talking about. You have like a really captive person who's interested and probably feels a little bit emotionally vested in your success mm-hmm. and wants to help and probably more likely to try it out. Right. I think
1: I, I would 100% agree with everything, Scott.
0: That's really cool. That's super cool. I love the playbook. There, there's one kind of final thing in the pivot yeah. which I don't want too much time on. Sure. But like, how do you know when it's time to to give up on the pivot and? and do something else you know like do you have to that's something i see sometimes where people founders will kind of grind themselves into the ground when when their initial idea didn't work and then the pivot doesn't
1: work like what do you do and how do you know it's time yeah that's a hard question to answer um the way i would think about it though is is twofold one you're generally going to fall into one of two categories when you're doing a pivot and the first would be It's kind of a zero or a one situation. Like when you make the pivot, you've trashed your old business model and you can't go back. So Mm -hmm. I gave you the example of uh, Curiata. Well, in theory, they could go back from selling direct to the consumer to going through distributors. It's such a different model that by switching, it's just going to be really difficult for them to to go back. So if they're going to do that, the burden of proof in terms of this new idea being a good idea is a lot higher before they make the switch and once they've made the switch i don't know that there is a going back right yeah.
0: so i just don't it's know. like burn, burn the boats mentality we're just going to make this work no matter what yeah nothing
1: kind of yeah exactly and, and then the okay. second category though is is like this workforce platform that we've been talking about um by going to this talent cloud approach. They're not really burning their boats. They're just saying, "Okay, there's this new market that we could go after." So in that case, obviously, you can be uh, a lot more lax about um, how long you're going to give this thing to succeed. I would certainly put a time limit on it. And you know, given that this is a B two B type of project, I would say, "Well, let's let's make sure we've got some business wins within the next six months that validates this. Otherwise, we got to go in a different direction." Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. Like some KPIs or some business goals. Yeah. And if you're not business goals, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, John, this has been really awesome. You are such an expert in this and you've been through it. And, and I think all this advice will be really, really helpful to our clients, just the startup community at large. Yeah. Maybe spend just a minute telling everyone where they can find you and just kind of reiterating Nova's you know, value prop for customers.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much. Sure, you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, um, John Schroeder at Nova Foresight. You can also email me at John, J-O-H-N, at NovaForesight.com. Um, just a quick thumbnail through you know, what we do is we, we help companies create sustainable growth. That's what excites me. That's what you know makes working with uh, startups so fun. And three basic areas is one is building your brands and your MVPs and figuring out how to pivot if you need to. Um, two, creating completely new products and services. And then three, identifying market opportunities or growth expansion opportunities. So those are the the, the big things that we're, we're working on. I love it.
0: Well, John, thanks so much. It's been great getting to know you. And I look forward to seeing you when I come back from my uh, Northwestern, like probably three years from now. <laughs> <laughs> A reunion. So looking forward to meeting you in person and thank you so much for your time and really appreciate it on behalf of the cruise consulting community. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a, a true pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. So when your troubles are mounting in tax or accounting, you go to cruise founders and friends. It's cruise consulting. Founders and friends with your host, Scotty. Oh. Scotty.